Welcome to the Possibility Podcast with me, your host, Sarah Knight. In this podcast, I explore what it means to be alive on the earth today amidst our climate crisis. And for me, that means getting very curious about all of this possibility that we carry around inside us. What if we could harness this and put it towards finding balance again and creating a better, more sustainable future? Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Mike Viking. Mike is the founder of the world's first happiness research institute in Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, He is also a research associate for the World Database of Happiness and part of the advisory group to the Global Happiness Policy Report. And he has actually been described as possibly the happiest man in the world. (laughs) Uh, See, and there he is to prove it, laughing in the background. Um, Mike is also uh, an internationally best-selling author. So he is now has three books uh, available. His first two books, The Little Book of Hugga and The Little Book of Luka, I have not yet read. But after reading his third book, I certainly look forward to it. So he has just released his latest book, The Art of Making Memories, How to Create and Remember Happy moments. Uh, Certainly, I think this book is very, very timely, as what is going on in the world right now has a lot of people um, looking at the meaning of life, uh, what their lives have meant to date, and what they want their lives to mean in the future. So I'm really, really grateful that you took the time on your book tour to talk to me today. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. So I guess, first of all, can you tell me as a happiness researcher, why are you interested in memories? So my career is essentially dedicated to answering three questions. Um, I try to understand how can we actually measure something as subjective and intangible and complex as happiness. Um, Secondly, I try to understand why is it that some people are happier than others. And thirdly, I hope to understand how we can improve quality of life. How can we increase uh, happiness levels? And we can see that Two of those questions uh, has to do with memory. So we can see when people are able to retrieve happy memories, when people are able to form a positive narrative about their past, they are also happier overall. And we can therefore say, okay, if we're able to create more happy, meaningful, memorable moments, uh, then we might actually improve overall happiness levels. But so that's sort of the professional um, interest in memories, but I think there is also a personal aspect in the inspiration for the book. And that was because a couple of years ago, I turned 40. Uh, and that means, uh, statistically speaking, uh, I have lived half my life. So men in Denmark, we live on average till we are 80. And just passing that sort of halfway to expiration mark, uh, <laughs> I think caused me to sort of reflect and think back on the first half you know, which were actually my happiest moments, which are my happiest memories, and how can I use that knowledge going forward to create happy moments in the future? Beautiful. And okay, thank you. You know, it's it's just before we recorded, I, I shared with you something that I have always been aware of, but I've never really put words on, that those happy, happy moments and happy times and meaningful times in my life really buoy me up, feels like they give me strength in my day and strength to kind of face 
the future? How do moments become memories? Some do and some don't. So how does that happen? Yeah, first of all, I want to say I think you're doing the right thing. I think you are using your happy memories as a happiness bank or a reservoir of happiness. So we can use episodic memory, which is our autobiographical memory, to go back in time and revisit moments where we felt happy, when we had a sense of connection, where we had a sense of purpose and meaning with life. Um, and we can see when, when people are feeling down, they actually engage more in nostalgic activity. So, so it's, it's a way to counteract negative feelings like anxiety and, and loneliness. So, so, so I think you're, you're using your happy memories in, in the right aspect. Um, and then you ask, how can, we, how can we create these happy moments? And I think, I think the first step is actually acknowledging that there is something we can do to make things more memorable. Um, and I think that to me, the biggest aha moment in researching and writing the book was going from the understanding that, or the perception that memory is something random, something that is coincidental, something I don't have control over, to now thinking that, okay, my memory and the memory of my family and friends and loved ones, that is actually something I can influence. I can actually, to some extent, have influence over what we remember and, and, and don't remember. So, so taking on that role as a memory architect is, is quite empowering. And one of the, one of the things we can do, uh, and in the book I go into the sort of different ingredients, but it might be something as simple as paying attention. And I'll, I'll give you an example of how that works. So I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, or a month ago now, with, with, a, with a Polish woman who had read the book and she was reminded of a time when she was about uh, eight. And at the time, she, she's having dinner with her mom and her sister. And they're, they're having a good time. They're laughing. They're feeling good. They're feeling happy. And then suddenly her mother says, I hope you remember this moment. And here we are 30 years later. And she still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. Uh, and I think, A, it shows how simple yet how powerful um, attention is. Uh, of course, it's also something that can be overused because if you, every time you sit down with your family, say, I hope you remember this moment, they're going to tell you to shut up. Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, used every once in a while, used in a strategic way, um, we can actually, with a very simple ingredient, make sure that our loved ones remember certain moments 30 years into the future. And I, th I think that is, 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 is wonderful, empowering to, to think of memories like that. Yes, totally. And I love the word that you used, memory architect. That was one thing that really jumped out to me in your book, paying attention. It's something that I think that that I do and that I want to do more of and something that doing this podcast has really made me reflect on. Um, one of the people that I, that I interviewed uh, said that he thinks that we are actually in right now, yes, we're in a climate crisis, but really what it is is a crisis of disconnection. And you talked about that in, the, in, in your book, the, you know, are we disconnected from our bodies, from each other, from the world around us? And where do we put our attention? And what is constantly pulling our attention out of the 
these present moments that could be so rich and so beautiful. And so I would love to hear your perspective on that, on the, the, the role between attention and connection and I guess where we're at right now, what's being reflected back to us by the world around us. I think that there's a global crisis to some extent or in a lot of different ways. Um, as you say, there's a, there's a global environmental crisis. There's a global crisis of disconnection. And I think there is a global awareness that the way we have been measuring progress is wrong. And I think there's a global sentiment that we have gotten richer as societies without necessarily people getting happier. Um, and that we have failed in a lot of ways to convert the wealth we have created into quality of life for people. And I think people are looking for new sources of inspiration. Um, and it's interesting, I, we, we get a lot of visits at the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen from delegations all over the world. But I think that the, the country we get most visits from is South Korea which I think is, is to some extent the, the poster child of that feeling that we have gotten richer without getting happier. Um, and also a global sentiment that we have been looking for happiness in the wrong places, that we have equated money with happiness. Um, so, so I think right now we're seeing slowly, but a, a sort of pivot towards um, looking for happiness through connection, looking through happiness, through a sense of purpose, um, connecting with others, connecting with nature, connecting with ourselves. And I think, I think I'm encouraged to see that development happening. Um, yeah, so, so, so I think there is a global crisis, but I think there's also a global growing awareness that we should look for happiness in new places. Yes. So that is so heartening. I mean, if, if you are, you are engaged um, with many communities around the world, research institutes and governments and organizations. And if, if I understand you, you're saying that you see that maybe the tide is turning and people are starting to recognize that how we have defined richness in terms of the accumulation of material wealth is actually um, not what makes us feel uh, richly experienced in our lives. So that tide is turning. You think? I, I, that's what I see. So, <laughs> so I don't think it's the mainstream sentiment right now. I don't think it's the norm, but, I, but I'm seeing, especially young people, right. um, have a different opinion of what we should define success at. So, so I, I, was, I visited uh, Beijing last year and, and, and did a lecture at, at the Tsinghua University. And I think there was a young student there that actually summed up quite well what we are seeing globally. And what he said was that earlier we've been looking, we've been, we've been looking to feed our stomachs and now we want to feed our hearts and our minds. Mm. And I, I, think, I think we are seeing that, that people are broadening the definition of success, especially in a lot of the, the Southeast Asian countries, the definition of success have been um, to do well financially, to succeed mm -hmm. academically. And, and you, know, you could become a doctor, you could become a lawyer, you could become a disappointment. Um, and I think, I, think we're seeing, I think we're seeing a widening of, uh, of what, success like, what success looks like. 
and that people have a broader and more holistic approach to the good life. And I'm encouraged by that. Wonderful. And okay, and uh, sorry, can I add a few things? Yeah, to that? please. You know, so so we're seeing governments right now looking at new measures for progress. So instead of just looking at are uh, the country getting richer, countries, governments are now also looking at measures that can help them determine are people actually getting happier. Um, we see academically a surge in. Uh, happiness research. The two biggest courses now at Harvard and Yale are courses on happiness. Um, so, so I think we're seeing politically, uh, academically, but also just publicly a, a pivot towards uh, more um, a more holistic approach to the good life. Wow. So, I mean, tell me, like, I'm aware of the, the, the world, the UN World Happiness Report. Where would you say, you know, in your engagement, the way you travel around and, you know, where you live, where is there a, is there a country that's actually taking this seriously and demonstrating that they're taking it seriously? Yeah, I, th I think there are several. Um, so, so, so the, the, the classic example here is the country of Bhutan. Um, so a small country, uh, 700,000 people in the eastern Himalaya. Uh, but what they've done is that since the beginning of the 70s, they have navigated with something they call gross national happiness. Mm. So instead of focusing on gross national product, are we getting richer? Uh, every political decision is based on, is this going to improve quality of life for people or not? Mm. Uh, so they take it tremendously seriously. It's also Bhutan that put happiness on the agenda for the UN. Uh, driving the, the UN happiness resolution in 2011. Um, and so, so, so that's the classic example. I think recently we are also seeing um, some, some countries uh, in the West um, sort of embracing this um, approach to, 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 uh, to well-being. So recently we had uh, the uh, New Zealand government uh, deciding on a well-being budget. So now bids to take part of the national budget has to come with an assessment on how is this going to affect uh, quality of life for people. Um, and, and I think New Zealand is a very interesting case uh, to, to follow in that example. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, it's I, somewhere I read that you go, you, you go around and you give... Um, you give talks, you advise on that subject, how to turn wealth into well-being. So, and, and so how, what does that look like? So when New Zealand is setting aside a budget and saying, okay, you want to invest in this, how is this going to relate to well-being? What does that actually look like? What are they, what are they measuring? So, I mean, one of the things we are looking at right now is how different diseases impact quality of life or happiness. And obviously, we can see if you have a disease, um, you are less happy than the average Canadian or Dane or, or Bhutanese. Um, but different diseases impact in different ways. Um, and we look at not only sort of diseases that impact you physically, but also mentally and socially. And try to say, well, maybe, you know, loneliness should also be looked at as something we have a responsibility as a society to mitigate. Uh, we can create cities differently. We can create policies differently that reduce the amount of people that feel disconnected with 
the rest of society that feel alone. Um, so, 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 so we look at all different aspects that sort of impact uh, happiness and quality of life. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so significant now too. someone else I interviewed. She's a, a city planner, actually. She talked about this. It's becoming well recognized again. OK, so crisis of dis- disconnection. She called it a loneliness epidemic, but that we are the more and more connected that we get to everything by the screens in front of our faces. Ironically, the more disconnected we get from from each other and the world around us. And you're where where this leads me on to now is is you know somewhere in your in your book I really liked the way you put it and I'm going to have to read it out here but that in um I think it was based on some research you did in your institute that you found that happiness was present when three different views aligned who we feel we are who we want to be and how others see us I completely agree with that. That resonated with me and I think was something that I only started to find as I, as I, you know, kind of got into my 40s <laughs> and, 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 and made the how, who I feel I am as important as how other people see me. And, um, you know, this, what we have been doing to date with our lives in terms of how we have created meaning in our lives and maybe how much of that time has been spent creating a false sense of meaning a sense of meaning in the eyes of other people what we think other people want us to do what we think we're supposed to do the measures that we are expected to live up to um and at the end of the day you know is that is that is that the surface surface layer of really what's possible in terms of really creating a real deep sense of meaning in our lives and a sense of meaning that would actually make us want to keep on living and make us really really care about carrying on um, with our own lives about leaving a future for for our children and so I know I don't know if there's a question in there, but I was really curious about those three points. The the because they resonated so strongly. Who we feel we are, who we want to be, and how others see us. Um, yeah, I think I mean, I think one of the benefits of us getting older <laughs> there is that we we become better at focusing what we actually need and stop worrying a little bit less about how others see us. But I, I, can, I can see in the conversations I have with people around the world, in the data we look at, uh, in the studies, that you know, happiness is often found in those places where we become where, who we hope we could be, but also where, where there is no disconnect between who we are and how other people see us. Um, and I think moving to happiness also means being open about who we are, uh, our positive sides and our negative sides towards our friends and family and sort of trying to lower that filter there is between us and our uh, social circles. Um, but yeah, so, so I mean, what I wanted to do with the book was just to help people um, become more in control of creating these happy moments and also become better at retrieving the happy memories they have in the past. And I've become, I mean, I've become such a huge fan of our memory. There is so much stored in there uh, that we can retrieve if we, if we find the right triggers. And I think that's also important to, to mention to your listeners that um, our memory works through association. So they will see something, they will hear something, they will smell something, and then that will trigger a memory. 
and that is also something we can actively use so we can build in uh, the five different senses when we feel happy. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and using our five senses also to retrieve happy memories. And that, that's something I'm, I think more, one of my favorite cases in the book is, is Andy Warhol. Uh, so what he would do was he would use the power of scent to retrieve happy memories. And he would wear the same perfume for three months and then never wear that perfume again. And that meant that over time he had created a museum of memories and he could then go sort of back in time, he would say, now I want to travel back to the time of 1982, the spring of that year, and then take a good whiff of that perfume and then be transported back in time. And I think that's something we can actively do, uh, build in a scent, build in a taste, building a soundtrack to um, the happy moments we have. Yes. So I want to ask you a little bit more um, about that, because something else that you mentioned towards the end of the book was that we, we use um, the same part of our brain to think about the past as we do about the future. And so, um, and again, maybe you might actually mention a few more of these things and kind of trigger the memories, but this, the senses tip was great, like engaging the senses when you're in a moment that you really want to remember. And so then you can touch on that scent, the, the smell of pine or beeswax or whatever it is to trigger that, to trigger that happy memory. Um, but is there anything, you know, of that tool and of the other tools that you mentioned, if we use the same part of our brain to think about the past as we do about the future, if we want to be able to imagine a meaningful future for ourselves, can we somehow use some of these tools so to almost plant the future memories and and to um, drive us to create the actions in the moment that will lead us to that outcome? It's kind of an abstract question, I think, but if we're using the same part of our brain, could we use the same tools to produce the outcome that we want to have? Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right. We use the same part of the brain when we travel back and when we travel uh, ahead in time. Um, and that's a wonderful ability to have a, a, as a species. Um, but I think traveling forward in time also mean embracing that role we talked about earlier as a memory architect and planning a memorable year or planning memorable moments in the future year that will allow you 20 years from now to look back at 2020 and and see happy moments and also i think one of my favorite tips in the book is the uh, apollo picnic um so let me first explain that you know we remember first experiences better so uh, the first kiss, uh, you know, first taste of something, uh, first time we go to a new place, we remember that better. And that's also why a lot of people will have far more memories from their teenage years and their 20s than in our 40s and 50s and 60s. It's also one of the reasons why time seems to speed up as we get older, because we have more first experiences uh, when we are young. But so the Apollo picnic is something you uh, should plan for 2020. Uh, so you make a note in uh, July 20th and you ask your friends and family to join you on a picnic. And the concept is that every one of you bring a dish or an ingredient that you have not tried before. So it could be, uh, it could be habanero chili. It could be some sort of Mexican food. It could be, I mean, I've tried, you know, snails in France and on a street market in Morocco. I've tried uh, Icelandic uh, shark. 
uh, over the summer, I tried ants for the first time, also the last time, but it was, it was quite memorable. Um, so, so everybody brings an ingredient they have not tried before. So it will be a first experience. It's also going to push people's comfort zone a little bit. And when we do something that scares us, that's also something that sticks better to memory. And you do it on July 20th. You call it the Apollo picnic because that's the anniversary for the Apollo mission. So the moon landings of first man on the moon. And that means every once in a while, the media is going to talk about the moon landing, the Apollo mission, and that will trigger a memory of that wonderful afternoon uh, where uh, you uh, had habanero chili together with your friends and family. So, so using elements like that, um, thinking about the future, what kind of memorable moments would I like to create for 2020? That will allow your future self in 20 years to look back at that fun, memorable uh, activity. Beautiful. What a great answer. I didn't know that my question would have one, so I'm so glad that it did. <laughs> I love that, though. So what you're saying, you know, you ma- okay, so in 20 years time, what do you want to remember? Well, life isn't going to happen by itself plan it out. And that's what your book gives. And I love that at the end, you gave a whole um, 12 tips based on a calendar. What can you do this month to create happy memories that you will be able to reflect on? Um, and so that's, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, don't just let it happen, plan it out. And it doesn't just stay in your head, plan it out and make it happen. And use some of those tools, engage the senses, have the first tastes, the first experiences, do something that scares you. That was something else that you mentioned there. Yeah. So that's, um, I really like that. And I really like also that I think that reflects where we're at right now, too, is just in general, people are looking for ways that they can more actively engage in life. You know, being kind of a passive bystander um, has served us only so far. and I think people are really feeling that that the way forward is to engage actively and to take control and to to regain control of our destiny in the way that that we want it again. So that's that's really great. Can I ask you actually then on that on that note too? I was really curious when I read your book. You said that um, you talked about how you actually live this. You know, you are you are actively trying to create happy moments. And at the end of the at the end of the that chapter, you mentioned that you were going on another first yourself. I think hike around an island this summer and how did the did you do that oh that's for 2020 that's for 2020 okay the book is that new that's for 2020 so great the book i mean i was written uh when was the last few words written i think in may uh this year right and so just to i think that that is also important actually too so you wrote the last words in the book of may this year you're planning the trip for 2020 again life doesn't happen by itself if you want to plan a trip you got to plan a trip and a year in advance is what it takes and you're going to have something beautiful to show at the end of it yeah that's wonderful thank you the the i have a friend who um in talking about what's going on in the world says that his worst fear is that everything that he will have done in his life, which so far has felt fairly meaningful, he's followed kind of a fairly um, creative life, will have actually amounted to nothing if that's his greatest fear, like his worst, if everything goes really bad, that's his worst fear, that what he has created on the basis that, you know, human civilization is going to kind of continue and, you know, we're going to be able to connect with each other in the way that we do and we're still going to be interested in things the way that we are, that what he has put his energy into will actually have amounted to nothing. And I think that that's surfacing for a lot of people in a lot of ways right now as we're being presented with... um, 
um, the idea that we need to take the blinders off and look at the world and how we're impacting it in a in a different way. There is plenty to do. I mean, and and I, I with your friend, for instance, um, if he's able to make other people happy, if he's able to allow people twenty years from now and look back at moments where they felt a sense of connection, where they felt loved, when they understood that you know, the purpose and meaning in life is about connecting with others. Uh, it's about experiences. It's about sharing. It's about creating the stories that bind us together as a humankind. Um, I, to me, that's going to be a meaningful life. Um, and I, I understand the desire to see something tangible, the manifestation of some of your efforts. But I mean, some of these things are not going to materialize for you know, a hundred years. Uh, I think some of the seeds we plant today, we're, we're not going to see them, you know, um, become fully flourishing until a hundred or 500 years from now. So, so maybe just having it as a goal that other people 20 years from now would look back at some moments they have shared with him and think of happiness. And that will be uh, become part of their happy memories. I think that could be, a very meaningful goal. And that's what we also mm -hmm. see. I mean, we collected, uh, I think we have the biggest collection of happy memories from around the world as part of the research for this book. And what we could see is how much people take part in other people's memories. Mm -hmm. So husband and wives and sons and daughters and fathers and, and, and mothers and aunts and uncles and friends and music teachers. I mean, people's happy memories are populated by other people. Um, so, so making sure that other people think back of happy times, I think that's a very worthy course and meaning and purpose in life. And you know what? I think a wonderful byproduct of that is hopefully also happiness for that individual. Once again, I love that you had an answer to that super abstract question. And you just gave me a real aha moment, you know, as... I, because I like to see myself as um, someone who is able to understand the difference between the material accumulation of of richness in the form of, of, of material objects and richness in the form of my life experiences. But, but I mean, what you just said, said there is also like, well, maybe we need to reframe what we create too. And that even as, as artists and as creators and entrepreneurs or whatever, that this, we feel this need to always create something tangible and something in form. Well, isn't that a, also a part of that way of thinking that that's the thing that has value if it takes on physical form? Yeah. What about, and you said this actually in your book too, that, you know, memory, it's a process. It's not a thing. It's not a, it's not a noun. And even rethinking um, of what is really valuable. And it's that human connection piece, maybe. Exactly. You know, and, and you know, maybe 10 years from now, you know, uh, if we have created that Apollo picnic, uh, you know, isn't it also a, a, an accomplishment if 10 or 20 years from now, um, 20 of our good friends and family members are going to look back on a, on a Sunday afternoon uh, where they spent uh, a few fun hours uh, eating things they've never tried before. Um, I, think that's also, I think that's also something to aim for. Thank you. That's really valuable for me as a creator that puts a lot of emphasis on, on making sure that I make something at the end of the day. Mike, can you... Um, Tell me a little bit more about the little book of Higa and the little book of 
Puga and Luka. Great. Can you tell me a little bit more about that too? Because they, they also kind of went around the world, I know. Sure, sure. So, so my first book was called The Little Book of Hugo. And I think the best short definition of Hugo is the art of creating a nice atmosphere. So um, it's about togetherness. It's about, you know, enjoying simple pleasures in life. It's about um, relaxation. And of course, you know, that is something that happens everywhere. Um, it's just the, the unique Danish thing is that we have a word that describes that situation. Uh, it's about creating the, the right lighting in a room because we can see the lighting is very important for atmosphere. It's why Danes, we burn a lot of candles, uh, why we like fireplaces because it gives off a nice, soft, warm light. Um, now, now that's a Danish word, but it's become a, a, a global phenomenon. But it's about enjoying simple pleasures in life. It's about creating a nice atmosphere among family and friends or even, even by yourselves. So the, the second book was, um, that was a broader, um, sort of a, a broader look at happiness, looking at what are people around the world doing to improve quality of life. So, so a global pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at, um, they have something called brain brushing in the schools in Bhutan, which is essentially a mindfulness exercise. In Japan, they have this concept called Shinrin Yuku, which is about, um, it's, it's something called forest bathing. So taking a slow walk in the forest using all your senses. In France, uh, we explore, you know, they spend more time than anybody else across the world eating. Um, but, you know, they love food, they love the good wine, they love the good ingredients, but they also see the, the meal as a social activity. So looking at what can we learn from people around the world in order to boost uh, our well-being, basically. That's fantastic. I love these three books. They're all resources for better living, for more enjoyable life. Right. Yeah. So, so I mean, my, my career is dedicated to understanding how can we create better conditions for good lives. Mm. Um, and, I mean, we, we do a lot of reports. We do a lot of, of sort of uh, academic work at the Happiness Research Institute. But the books are also just a really great way to reach a, a wide audience. So I, I try to write in a very conversational tone. So I imagine sitting a, a, across from somebody else, uh, perhaps at dinner, having an interesting conversation and sort of presenting uh, the science, but presenting it in, in a fun, uh, I think, with a great sense of humor. <laughs> entertaining yeah, way. no, very. <laughs> very. There were lots of out loud laughs in your book. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and I appreciated that you were willing to share some of your own personal stories, too. There were some doozies there that were great. (laughs) You know, and it was interesting, too, I thought, I think a lot of what holds us back from connecting with each other is um, how we hold on to shameful experiences of the past. And it makes us unwilling to kind of open up and take that risk. And you actually even even gave a really great tip for kind of, you know, clearing out some of that shame that we carry around. Actually, the process of sharing those stories (laughs) discharges them. I, I, I do that a lot. I, I share my embarrassing stories and, and I've, I've actually experienced several things. A, you know, it removes the power they have over me. They lose uh, the, the element of embarrassing, uh, embarrassment. And secondly, when, when I do share that, uh, a lot of people will share some of their embarrassing stories back and that gives me some, some really fun times and it's, it's a great bonding exercise. Yeah. And we can also see actually 
and I think I mentioned this in the book, that sharing embarrassing stuff and talking about your memory and talking about whether you think you had a happier childhood than other people and what's your most treasured memory, that is actually part of a batch of questions that have been designed, uh, so to speak, to make people fall in love or to create intimacy among strangers. So sharing our past, sharing our memories, good and bad, embarrassing ones and so on, that's actually what makes us connect uh, with other people. So there are plenty uh, good reasons to to uh, not only make good memories, but also talk about the memories that we have. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. This book came along at a perfect time for me. I have gained from it and from our conversation. Well, and to pick your book up, it's a Penguin Random House publication. I guess any, you know, the usual outlet. Yeah. And it's called The Art of Making Memories. Beautiful. Thank you. One was made today for me. That's for sure. Happy <laughs> to point. hear that. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Wishing you all a beautiful day full of meaningful moments and happy memories.